0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.wesbca.com. Continuing in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, this series on the epistles of John. We come tonight to 1 John 2 at verse 3, reading verses 3 through 14. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and in you, Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong And the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father, we pray that as we look into your Word now, you would be gracious to open it to us. We are dependent on you, and we confess that to you. Thank you that you promised to give your Holy Spirit, to give light to our eyes, and that your Word would come and to enter our hearts and minds and change us and transform us and lift us up in faith in you. So let it have its way with us in this time through Jesus Christ, amen. What would you think if in these dire economic times someone were to come to you with an offer too good to refuse? People are hesitating now, not knowing whether to put their money in the stock market or not, what to do about that. But what if a person wanted... You to invest $10,000 with them and gave you this assurance, in 10 years, your $10,000, I guarantee you, will be worth a million. Well, we would all be rightly skeptical about such a deal, right? We might even think about calling the authorities or the Securities Exchange Commission or whatever, because obviously, this is a scam. And if it were a phone call, we'd hang up the phone and think, why did he even listen to that? I think that's how many modern Americans tend to think about the Bible's teaching or Christian teaching about assurance of salvation. They think somewhere along these lines, this doctrine that you can be certain of eternal life sounds like some kind of a scam. At best, they would look at it as the naive teaching of well-meaning religious folks And at worst, they would see it as a manipulative and cult-like way to deceive people. But the truth of the matter is the Bible is absolutely clear about the reality of Christian assurance. It is possible to know that you are saved and that you're going to heaven, that you have eternal life, that you have a right relationship with God through Christ. This is not a religious scam. It is a gracious gift of God, a blessing from Him founded on the faithfulness of God's character and His certain word of promise to us. It's a gracious gift that springs from the work of Jesus Christ and the application of that work of redemption by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. And so, this evening, we want to begin to think about this theme of assurance. And I say begin to think about it because we'll be coming back to it at different times as we look through the epistles of John because this is a reoccurring theme. I'd like us to see, first of all, that assurance of salvation is vital to Christian life and growth. Assurance is vital to Christian life and growth. In verses 3 through 6, we see John begin to talk about the close connection of assurance to our lives in Christ, to our fruit that we have in Christ. It says in verse 3, we know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His Word… God's love is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Now, we're going to look more at what John is saying here about the ethical commandments here, about this command to obey God. But notice here that John is assuming that we can know that we are in Him, that it's something that we can know, that, that it's something that we should know, and that that we can grow in that. An important part of growing in Jesus Christ is growing in your assurance of salvation. In fact, later on in 1 John, when we get to chapter 5, verse 13, which tells us, if anything, the purpose for writing 1 John, John writes it this way, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life interesting because the Gospel of John has a purpose statement near the back that says that John is writing the Gospel of John that people might believe in the Son of God. But this epistle to John, 1 John, is that people might know, that Christians might know, that they might have more assurance that they have eternal life. And so as we step back, and this evening we're coming to the first, in a sense, series of of the tests of life, we might say. In 1 John, one of the ways you can organize the entire book is that it has these cycles of bringing us through these tests of life that we might call them. Three tests that we see in 1 John repeated. One is the test of obedience or the moral test, and and that's the one that we see here in verses 3 through 6. Then there's the test of love, is there genuine love? We see that in verses 7 through 11. And then there's the test of belief or right doctrine, believing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And we'll see that when we get into chapter 2 more. So, these three tests of life, as they're sometimes called, are what John focuses on again and again. And you might find it kind of hard to read through 1 John because as you read, you think, didn't I just read that? it seems like I just read that, and maybe you just did, because John repeats it for emphasis again and again. He keeps cycling through these tests of life. And I would term 1 John assurance, for the most part, what theologians might call indirect assurance, as opposed to direct assurance. Indirect assurance is the kind of assurance, if you turn back a page or two to 2 Peter chapter 1, where we see the same kind of thing, 2 Peter 1, verse 10, where we, where we see this command about assurance. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Interesting, isn't it? Brothers, make your calling and election sure. In other words, be certain about your salvation in Christ. And And right before that, the verses that precede that, that are this, this strong section about It starts in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and so forth, all the way down to love. the same kind of thing that we see in 1 John. Indirect assurance is the assurance that comes as we see the fruit of Christ dwelling in us. We see the evidence in His of His work in our lives. Not perfect by any means, but a changed life. That's why Jesus has such strong words in Matthew seven twenty-one, which is another, what I would call, an indirect assurance kind of test, but it, it's in the other kind of way. It's a warning to those who call Him Lord, but not do what He commands. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Did we not prophesy in your name and do many wonderful things? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, because they did not do the will of God. There has to be a changed life. But in addition to that indirect assurance, there's a more fundamental kind of assurance that every Christian is to have and experience, what we would call maybe direct assurance. Romans 10, speaks about this, the familiar verses in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with you, your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Well, direct assurance says, I believe that pro- promise of God is true for me. I believe in Jesus Christ. I am willing to to say that before others and before the world in some sense. And so, I know because the promise of God applies to me that I am saved. It's interesting, the Westminster Divines, as they're called, who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, as I understand it, had a debate about whether assurance and this kind of direct assurance of faith, whether that's part or the essence of saving faith. In other words, they were debating whether you can truly be saved and not have an assurance of that. And they actually came down on the side of saying, no, it's possible to truly be saved, to have saving faith, and to have little or no assurance. And I think that that's biblical and that's right, that it's possible. That's But that's not good. It's important to grow in assurance, but it's possible to have little or no assurance and truly have saving faith. But the reason that they debated that, at least in part, is because it is so closely tied into saving faith itself. Saving faith in the promises of God's Word through Christ bring with them an assurance, an immediate kind of assurance. Knowing that the promises of God are true for me by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, direct assurance more has to do with, am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Do I know the promises of God are true for me? Yes, that's, at, that's foundational. That's, we would say that's the bedrock of our assurance, Jesus Christ and the promises of God. But then, we should be growing in 1 John assurance, it's vital to our Christian life and experience. We should be seeing the fruit of faith in our lives, and that should encourage us that, yes, God's at work in my life. I do know Christ. There's some evidence there, not without failing, of course, and not with many ups and downs, but both elements of assurance are important. But the point that I'm trying to make here from verse 3 to 6 is that John is telling us that assurance is vital to our Christian life and experience. And true faith will show up in a changed life. It's vital to our joy in Christ, to our peace. It's vital to our endurance and hardship. Well, we might just ask as we think about this first point, what are some reasons why people might not have much assurance? I have three brief reasons about this. One is that they have wrong teaching about assurance. Many times people have the mistaken notion that you just cannot know whether you're saved. They don't understand what the Bible says about it. If you were here at the service this morning, you got the handout about reaching out to the Amish in our Lancaster community, and an effort of a man in our church to do that. And I was talking to him the other week, and he was just… Talking to me about the fact that the Amish uh, think that it's a form of pride to say or to think that you know that you are saved. Now, you know, th- I'm sure there are different places of where Amish folks are in terms of their walk with Christ. Uh, their religion has a lot of legalism to it. Uh, but, you know, that whole idea that. You cannot say that, or you should not say that because it's it's proud to do so. That's not biblical, is it? They've been taught wrong about that. I would even give a reason deeper than that. Many religions teach that you can't know that you're saved, and the reason people think assurance is wrong is because they have a totally wrong teaching about justification, about how we know that we are right with God. And in fact, they teach, many religions teach that the only time at which you can know whether you're right with God is on Judgment Day. And all your life you're working and hopefully piling up good works in some way so that on Judgment Day you will be able to stand, but you don't know until that day. So, in other words, your whole life is lived in the sense of fear to some degree that you hope you make it on that day, whereas the Christian life teaches that justification is something that has happened to the Christian already in Christ. We've been justified in Him. There's no condemnation, so the rest of our lives on this earth are lived in light of that great truth, knowing that we stand justified in Christ. You see the foundational difference there. And so, fundamentally wrong teaching about how justification is experienced is also a reason why many folks have no assurance. But I would say there's a third reason as well, and that is because sometimes Christians misunderstand the nature of the Christian life, that there is always struggle with sin, that there is always the fight of faith. The Bible is full of that imagery of fighting and warring and running. It's like a long-distance marathon. And if a Christian, if a young Christian doesn't understand that, yes, you are saved through Christ's work, but there's a struggle going on, there's a war the rest of your life, and there are many ups and downs that are involved, that person might think, well, this struggle proves that I'm not saved. Not at all. No, there is struggle in the Christian life. That doesn't mean that you're not in Christ. But what 1 John is telling us is that new life in Christ will bring forth fruit, not without struggle, not without ups and downs. And so we see that 1 John makes it clear that assurance is possible, and not only is it possible, but it should be part of normal Christian experience and we must understand it and we must seek to grow in it. That's our first point. Secondly then, God calls us to grow in assurance by fruit-bearing faith. <clears throat> and this is really the emphasis of verses 3 through 11, that that genuinely being in Christ will bring forth fruit. And the two tests that we see in verses 3 to 11 are the test of obedience and then We might say a more specific subset of that, the test of love, because love is the highest form of obedience, we might say. So in verses 3 through 6, we see this repeated theme of obedience to his commands. Verse 3: We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I don't know him, but who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Genuine faith will result in genuine fruit. Being in Christ will result in Christ's life being lived out increasingly in us. And the strong exhortation we hear in our text, and it gets stronger in verses 7 through 11, almost puts assurance in a negative context. The reason for this, I think, is that part of the reason that the Apostle John wrote 1 John was because of false teachers who were bothering the church of that day. And in chapter 2, at verse 18, we read about them And we have to understand that as we hear what he says about these tests of life. In verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. Now that's a, about the clearest statement we have in First John that alludes to the context in the local church. Apparently, there were false teachers there who had recently gone out from the church in Asia Minor, where John ministered. And apparently, it was confusing the believers that were left behind, and John is saying. Look, their lack of love, their lack of true Christ-like fruit shows that they didn't really know Christ, that they were not of us. It's finally come out in their actions. And so that negative sense we find here in some of the things that he goes on to say about love, notice how he he talks about this new command the old command, and uh, we'll talk in a minute about that, this command to love. But he says in verse 9, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. No doubt, John is alluding to these false teachers who were recently in their midst. It's interesting, as you think about that, and you think maybe about some of the cults that you've read about, or maybe you've experienced some of them firsthand, or false religions, you always know them by their fruit, don't you? There's not genuine love in non-Christian cults. And they might appear to be loving at first, or they may have love in some ways, but ultimately they're using their followers. And often these kinds of cults, cults or false religions go to one of either extreme, either an extremely immoral extreme on one hand, that they get into all kinds of sins, or an external Legalism, on the other hand, that they develop this, this moral code of external things and they stick to that, but both of those are not the genuine fruit of being in Christ and Him dwelling in us. And that's, I think, what John is fighting against here. He's saying that if anyone is in Christ, anyone who is born again, there will be worked out in his or her life a new Obedience and especially obedience that exhibits itself in genuine love. Let's look at a little bit about John's emphasis here, this call to love, as we think about fruit-bearing faith. He talks about, it's almost confusing to read it in verses 7 and 8 about this new command, which is not really a new command, uh, but it's the old command, He says, Dear friends, I am not writing a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. And there he's probably talking about since the beginning of their Christian experience. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. In other words, John is an old man now. Uh, This command has been around for some years. It's when Jesus said it in John 13, we have it recorded there, this new command to love one another, and and the world will know that they are His disciples because of their love. And really, even when Christ spoke it, it wasn't a brand new command because the Old Testament speaks about love and commands to love, but Jesus had a radical remaking of it. So, John is, is playing on that here, and he's saying, this command you've had with you from the beginning. And he's saying, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and in you. In other words, it's in Christ as the supreme example of this new command, but it's seen in you too because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. There's evidence of this love in your lives. This new command to love remains new in that it remains true and always relevant. Think of your lives this week. Each one of us will have many opportunities this week to live out the command of Jesus Christ to love as He loved, to follow in His footsteps. It's always a true and always relevant command. And it's seen in Jesus Christ, but it's God's will that it be evidenced in Jesus' people, you and me. How might this command to love be evidenced in your life this week? Well, we could think of some particulars. It may be that you're going to sin against someone, someone you may know well, someone that you see every day, and you're going to need to humble yourself and confess your sin and love by humbling yourself before that individual or maybe the opposite kind of way it may be that someone's going to sin against you and you're called to love that individual by forgiving him or her very practical application of this command to love and one thing we can say and this is we all know anyone who's <clears throat> excuse me tried to live out this command this command to love is very costly it always demands a Christ centered, Christ-exemplified, sacrificial love. But we know that it's an evidence to the world of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He came to do. Look at the end, excuse me, look at the end of verse 8, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Speaking about the gospel going out into the world, and this gospel has already gone out in the Apostle John's day, and how much more it's gone out now in our day, and there's this attraction that the church has to the world because the true light is shining in the body of Christ with this evidence of love, and it has an attractiveness to the world that the world is always amazed at. Yes, many times the church fails, but there is something different something Christ-like in the church. And John goes on to speak about this love as the evidence of the new birth and about uh, the evidence of true spiritual light. He says, anyone in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So, in other words, love is the supreme evidence of the new birth of spiritual life. The context again here is false teachers who have left the church and, and did so out of a lack of genuine Christ like love. I appreciated Tucker's illustrations last week about going into West. Texas and going up to that mountaintop in the dark and stumbling all around, talking again about First John and John's theme about light and darkness. And, and that's, that's an important theme here because we see this contrast between darkness and light. I would use the il- illustration of another uh, out west kind of experience. We have a number of times gone to some of the biggest caves in the world in Carlsbad, New Mexico. I might have talked about them in the past, but these caves were discovered in the late 1800s by a farmer and his son who were out looking for stray cows. And at dusk, they saw looked like a cloud rising from the ground in the distance. And they approached and got near and saw that it was thousands and thousands, and in fact, millions of bats leaving this cave at dusk when the bats go out to hunt for insects at night. At that time, there were probably two to three million bats in the cave. Now there are about 600,000 bats. But still, if you go there at dusk, which we've done twice now in the years past with our kids, you sit there in this viewing area, and as it starts to get to be dusk, you start to see this stream of bats flying out of this cave, and for 20 or 30 Minutes, You see this constant, it's like smoke coming out, but if you were close, you can see that they're bats coming out to hunt for their nightly insects. But if you go down into Carlsbad Cave, of course, the point I'm getting to here is you don't want to be in the bottom recesses of Carlsbad Cave if there's a failure in the power. You know, you, you walk down, but then when after a couple hours of walking down through all these Great caves. You get to the bottom one, at least the ones that the public's allowed to go to. And then there's an elevator out. That's great. You don't have to walk back up. But down there at the bottom, before you get in the elevator, you're in this room, cavern that's the size of a football field. Now I think of that when I see John write about uh, walking in darkness in verse 11. If they turned off the lights in that football field-sized place, when I was down there, as much as I liked playing football as a kid, I would not try to play football in the dark, you know, because you're definitely going to be in utter pitch blackness. There's no light at all down there, I'm sure. You wouldn't be able to see your hand in front of your face. That's darkness. John is saying if you are in darkness, if you don't know Christ, there's not going to be the evidence of love shining from your life. A loveless life is evidence of spiritual darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will walk in the light. That's what he's saying because Jesus came to bring the life, the light. So, how do we produce this love that we read about in 1 John, and we're going to read about it more, this command to love with this new commandment as Christ loved. Well, we would say that we have to work at it, yes, but we would also say we work at it in Christ's strength with the power that He gives. And how liberating that truth is. You see, genuine Christianity says, Yes, there is assurance that comes from seeing the fruit of faith in our lives, but it's something that even though we work at it, ultimately it is God who is working it in us. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 make it clear. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to act according to His good purpose. I like to use the illustration of a car car when I think about this calling to love, because don't when we hear this call to love and we think about its application to us this week, don't we all feel how weak we are in our own strength to love as Jesus loved? But it's like a car, isn't it? Because if I told someone, well, take the car, you know, it would make it easier. You wouldn't see them, you know, pushing the car down the street, taking the car. That wouldn't make it easier at all, right, if you didn't know to turn the ignition on. I think about this sometimes because uh, we picked up a family in Chicago in about 1978. We were seminary at, seminary at the time, and our local church had sponsored a Vietnamese family to come over from Vietnam. And Patty and I picked them up at the airport, uh, husband and wife and about an 8-year-old boy. And we picked them up there, and I'm pretty sure that this was their first time in a car. It's probably interesting to be with someone their first time in the car. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure it was from what… We weren't able to talk very much, but we were, our job was to take them to the apartment that the church had gotten for them and stockpiled with food and everything. They're all set to go. And they had been on this long trip, and sure enough, they all got pretty sick in the car because this was you know and i just thought what was it like for them to drive on these expressways on the north shore of chicago and seeing all these lights and it was dark and you know all kinds of you know whizzing around on these loops and just think this must have been like a totally foreign world to them and if this was their first time in a car can you imagine if they would have tried to get in the car and make it work do you see my point here it's pretty obvious isn't it that We can't love with the kind of love we're called to love if the ignition of Jesus Christ dwelling in us isn't turned on. It would be like those Vietnamese folks just trying to sit in the car and get somewhere without knowing anything about it. No. Yes, we do work at it. We labor at it. We strive with all the effort that we have, but we do it trusting the power of Christ's strength because He's dwelling in us. Well, let me conclude with my last point as we look at this. And this brings us to verses 12 through 14. And the point is this, in our lifelong fight of faith, our deepest assurance is always Christ's work and His keeping power. In the fight of faith, our deepest assurance is founded on Christ's work, His keeping power. As much as we talk about these tests of life, and what I would call indirect assurance as we see the fruit of God's working in our lives. Ultimately, our bedrock of assurance and our deepest encouragement when life is hard and the fight of faith is hard is in Christ's work. And I think we see this come out here in this poetic section. If you have the NIV, you see that it's translated as poetry, where the Apostle John encourages the flock there. And we might say, why does he do this? Why does he, what is this section all about? It seems that it, it seems kind of odd to us as we come to it. I write to you, dear children, fathers, young men, dear children, fathers, young men. Well, there are different views about what this might be, but the view that I like best and I think is right is that, that John has spoken about these warnings, these tests of life in light of these false believers that have been in their midst, But as he's talked about these warnings and these tests, it's very easy for sensitive souls to fall into doubt and to begin to think, well, I must not even be in Christ. Uh, There must not be any work of Christ in me. Uh, Maybe I should give up. Maybe there's no reality in my life. And that's true for the church now. Whenever I preach about this theme, I'm always aware there's a, a reality that often when you talk about the warnings Scripture holds out, It seems that the people who probably need to hear those the most are the ones who are saying, oh, I hope so-and-so hears this. But the people who probably don't need to hear it, the sensitive souls who are easily cast down by any warning like that, are the ones who are going to go out of here just feeling totally discouraged, thinking, is there any reality in my life? And I think that's part of what was motivating John under the inspiration of the Spirit to write this because verses 12 through 14 are filled with assurance, reassurance. And he speaks to these three groups. I think he's speaking to different levels of spiritual maturity, children, young men, fathers. And this applies to women and men both, but he's using these terms. And he's basically saying, no matter where you are in your Christian life or experienced, be encouraged don't be cast down. Your faith is founded in Christ. And let me just briefly go over these three. Children, verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. John's going to the once for all experience of forgiveness when we come to Christ and reminding them, your sins have been forgiven. He uses the verb tense that talks about past action with continuing results. There's for sins have been forgiven once and for all in Christ. And then further down at the end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. There he's talking about the fact that our Christian experience means that we've come into fellowship with God. Again, the same verb tense, something that we have experienced once and for all. That's the foundation. We've had this experience of being brought into fellowship with God. But then there is also, he addresses fathers, verse 12, excuse me, verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And he repeats that again in verse 14. So, it's the same thing, and it's the same verb for know that children are addressed at, so it's not like he's using a deeper word for no, but I think the emphasis for fathers and the encouragement for them, those who ha- have achieved a degree of spiritual maturity, who have grown in Christ and have been around for a while, he's focusing and reminding them of God's unchanging faithfulness because both times, he says, you have known Him who is from the beginning, the unchanging faithfulness of God. These people who are more mature in faith have learned through experience, through the hardships and trials, through the tests of faith. They have known Him who is from the beginning, and their faith is founded on that rock-solid knowledge of the unchanging character of God. And then he addresses young men as well, those in between the stage of childhood and, and mature manhood, we might say. And he writes to them, he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And he repeats that in verse 14, but he adds the words, because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you. Again, the perfect tense here, that the verb tense, seems to indicate that he's looking back to their conversion experience and saying, our assured standing is based on Jesus Christ. You have overcome the evil one because you are united to Christ, and this has been worked out in your life because the Word of God, the Word of Jesus Christ, dwells in you, and you are strong in that Word. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, where we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of, the God, the word of God. So, the application that we can draw from this is whatever your level of spiritual growth, remember Your encouragement and your assurance is founded in Jesus Christ, His work in your life, what He has already accomplished for you on the cross and in rising from the dead, and the Holy Spirit's work of applying that to your heart when you came to Christ and continues to apply it as you walk with Him. So, you probably won't get an offer this week for $10,000 being made into one million in any time soon, and if you do, hang up the phone, but remember that you have even better promises from God's Word, promises that assure us of a right relationship with God and of eternity with Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this teaching that is hard because it's demanding and convicting, and it shows us how we need to grow in You. But, Father, we pray that you would lift us up and help us to take you at your word and to look to Jesus Christ this week, whatever the trial or temptation might be. Help us to stand in Christ our Lord. We pray in his name.